0: Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 137. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at Journeyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy at Network
1: Nerd Underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Highly caffeinated, as usual. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so
0: this week starts another two-parter, this time with Don Jones. I'm super excited. Um, We had a really great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to listening to it again. Uh, He's had uh, quite a bit of stuff going on in his career, hasn't he?
1: A few things, you know, written around 60 different technical books, and now he writes fiction. I remember hearing an interview on none other than Datanauts with Don Jones about his publication at the time, Be the Master, which now has morphed into Own Your Tech Career. It's a book that was recently released. Make sure you can get that one. But yeah, just a lot of experience, been through the cycle of individual contributor and manager and back again through the cycle. Lots of great knowledge we were able to, to gain from Don. And I'm sure, like you and I talked about, we could have talked to him for six more hours.
0: Yeah, yeah. His um, stories about early in his career and how he got into tech, very nontraditional, although maybe it's traditional and it's uh, traditionalness, yeah? Exactly. I also think uh, we should mention up front that Don is having an event that hopefully everybody will go check out. It's called Amp Navigator. He's starting out, I would to say, a career support service called Ampere Club. And that's Club. And uh, that event is on October 7th and 8th. Uh, ampereclub.club slash amp navigator. And we're actually doing a session for the event. So uh, that's exciting.
1: Yeah, lots of different career-focused sessions from different people in the industry. All virtual, of course, so you don't even have to leave your house.
0: Yeah, if you are a member of Don's Ampere Club, it's free. Otherwise, it is $50 for the entire event, which is you know well over 10 sessions at this point. And I think uh, he still might be soliciting uh, other people for uh, more content. So uh, su- I'm super excited. Um, I'm going to make sure to listen to every single one of these. Absolutely. Let's uh, not delay any more. I, th- I want to make sure that everybody gets to listen to the actual event, uh, actual interview with Don and-, and see why we're so pumped up to uh, talk to him. So without further ado, part one of two with Don Jones.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey
2: today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please?
2: Yeah. Um, I have been in the tech industry since the mid-1990s. I started as a a Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer. Uh, Well, amongst other things, right? We've all done lots. Um, I kind of bounced through my career... uh, uh, saw opportunities that looked interesting and grabbed them. So I've, I've done the conference speaking circuit for about 22 years. Um, I've written about 60 technology books. Uh, I've taught live classes. Yeah, it turns out I write fast, uh, which is awesome.
1: That's something we need to dig into here. In it's,
2: yeah, uh, I'm head of developer skills for Pluralsight, which means I am responsible for determining uh, what topics and how deep we go for all of our developer content. Uh, and then in order to to scratch the writing itch, since I don't get to write tech books anymore, uh I write fiction.
0: Well, I think we want to hear all about that. <laughs> I'm um, in. If if we get to the fiction, that might that might have to be part three or it might be the uh the kickoff of a brand new uh podcast that we do. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us maybe a little bit about that that origin story. You said you started as a Microsoft certified system administrator, but most people don't actually start off as no. it's like a <laughs>
2: Um, I actually started as a kid with a Commodore 64 uh, and I, you know, when everyone was out playing and being athletic, I was inside punching away on the keyboard, which has ruined me for touch typing. By the way, I am, I am a horrific, horrific typist to watch. Um, There was just always fascinated with them, but my guidance counselors in school told me that because I wasn't great at math, I I just had no patience for it that I couldn't do computers. Uh, And so I, I didn't pursue it at all. And, and you know, this is the, I graduated in 89. So back then, like doing computers, I'm, I'm not even sure what that, what they thought that meant. Uh, probably rocket science. So I switched out of an honors track program in high school and into just the normal track and went to vocational technical school. So in the junior, senior year for, for, for us, that was half a day, uh, every day at VoTech. And I went for electronics and computer repair. Uh, and was recruited by the Navy to be a civilian aircraft engineering mechanic apprentice. So I worked on the F-14 Tomcat and A-6 intruder platforms. And we had a, we had a little cultural diversity week. And, you know, they, they asked people to do presentations and stuff like that. And I did a little how to take your computer apart and put an upgrade card in and everything else. And uh, one of the guys from my shop came over and said, you were wasting your time here. You need to get out of here and you need to go do that. And so we had a a base realignment and closure. And so I I quit and I went to work for a company called Electronics Boutique, which you might know as EB Games. They were purchased by GameStop several years ago. So video game retailer. Um, Sales associate, assistant manager, store manager in real quick succession as you do in retail. And then got a job at their home office as the uh, evening shift point of sale system help desk. So we had our own point of sale system, computer based uh, switched over to being an AS 400 operator, wrote their, wrote a literally brand new visual basic based point of sale system. Wound up leaving that job, decided I was going to be a network engineer. And I'd literally never seen a network up until that point. Like we had an AS 400, not a network. So I, I crashed my way through a bunch of books. I think it was, um, new wave or new, new order. Some, there was a, a book publisher uh, and they published the first MCSE prep books, and it was like two tests per 17 pound book. Um, it was a six tests at the time. Took those, got my MCSE. Uh, they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll pay you a few thousand bucks every time you get a certification. I'm like, hold that thought. Got my CNE, got my, you know, compact ASE, got my A. Um, wound up leaving that job, went to work for Bell Atlantic as their network administrator on one of the Bell Atlantic companies. Got connected with a company that we used for ILT for training uh, called Micro Endeavors in Upper Darby and just got really fascinated with the idea of, of being an MCT. So they let me teach night classes at Penn State University to former, ironically, aircraft mechanics from Boeing who were being outplaced. Uh, so that was kind of a, a neat little trip. Did that. I, they said, you know what? Your reviews were great. I'm like, I love this. I, can you hire me? They're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to hire you. Um, so I became a trainer there. I wound up running the, their training and coursework group, wound up running the software consulting side of their business. Um, kind of had a little freak out about being in senior leadership. I was I don't know, 27, 28. So I took a job at a.com craftopia.com, which is now owned by home shopping network as a lead web developer. Uh, Cause I wanted to go, go back to just being an individual contributor. They dot bombed. So literally Christmas time, 2000, they came and said, Hey, it's been great. Get out of here. Have a great holiday. Don't come back. We're out of money. Have a good time. So I had just got my first book deal and decided, you know what? I'm going to see how this goes. And so from 2000 until 2014, mostly uninterrupted, I was independent. And that's when I did all the books and the speaking and the training and, and all the other things. Um, there was a period where I worked for Sapient Technologies uh, which is a, a software vendor doing the same things. And then 2014 came around and, and I said, you know, I, I, I kinda the, like the independent thing is hard and lonely and I want to be part of something a little bigger. And plural state had acquired a company, a training company called train signal. And I'd done some work for them and I said, Hey, you know, you guys look in and they said, you know what, let's, let's have you up to Salt Lake city and let's talk. And, uh, I've, I've been there ever since.
1: Yeah, I feel like I remember the train signal days from like when we were in the Spiceworks community pretty heavily, John.
2: Yeah, yeah. They were, so Pluralsight at the time was pure software development and train signal was pretty much purely IT operations content. Um, And so it, it, it made a really good fit.
1: So if I heard right, Don, there were two cycles of up to manager, down to individual contributor. Yeah, now, you, you mentioned you had a freak out. Can you just dig into that a little bit more? What was it like to go into that leadership position, whether you wanted it or not?
2: Yeah, I, I think, and this is something that I've seen a lot of folks that I've worked with go through. There's a bunch of stuff that happens when you you get into management. One of the first things that hits you is you are no longer capable of creating your own success. Your team has to, like you have to acknowledge that you are not producing anything. You are coordinating. It's an, it's important thing, but your success is dependent on other people. And, you know, so many of us are used to being self-sufficient and like my own success comes from within myself and I can determine my success. And it's really hard to have that taken away. Um, kind of related to that. I think a lot of us look at the work we've done over the course of a day. And at the end of the day, we have an emotional sense of if it was a good day or not. And as a leader, like especially the higher you go, I, I can't tell you if I had a good day today. Like I won't know for a month if today was a good day. So you have to kind of find your, like your emotional ground in other metrics. You have to look elsewhere for that. You have to, you have to pull back. You have to be able to take a bigger view. And if you don't explicitly realize all these things, it can become very depressing. You know, you feel like your tech skills are useless You feel like you have no control, no power. It's just all these other people who start to frustrate you. Like, you know, if somebody on your team screws up, it's always gonna happen. And you just, you start to internalize that in this hugely massive way. And if you don't really explicitly acknowledge all that to yourself and step back and go, okay, here's what's happening to me in my head, and here's why, and if this is something I wanna do, I need to change the way I think about this. Um, Success for a leader is not the same as success for an individual contributor. You you have to think about a lot of different things. It took me a few cycles before I realized that's what was happening. You know, you grow up, you you have different coaches, you have different people you admire, you have different people who are mentors to you. They all eventually help you synthesize all that. And uh, once you can get there, it's actually extremely rewarding, but it's not rewarding in the same way as what you did before, it's a different, it's a different job. It takes different skills. It takes different everything. You know, it's not just, oh, I'm a great programmer, so I'm gonna be a great manager of programmers. Um, no, actually, you might hate it if that's how you're going into it. You've gotta really reel it back and, and think about it for what it is. It's a profession.
0: That's a, a very powerful realization, I think, yeah. that, and we've, uh, you know, in, in different um, times, we've, we've focused a little bit more and less on, on people who are thinking about going for that management career track, as opposed to you know kind of like the climbing the ladder of individual contributor, you know senior, super de- duper senior, you know extremely super senior, extremely, yeah, violently what I, senior.
2: What I tell people now is separate the idea of manager and leader in your head because they actually are different things. Now you know some of that's just semantic hair splitting, but you can lead from within. You can lead as a peer. You can lead without being the boss. Um, Management is responsible for allocating resources and measuring progress and all sorts of other things. Those are professional skills. If you think that that might or it might not be in your path, try being a leader first. You can be a leader without a promotion. And if that starts to feel good, well, you can learn to be a manager, but the best managers are also good leaders. Where we fail is when we've got a manager who's not a good leader. And we've all had those or heard stories about them. So, you know, I, I've been trying to tell people, like lead lead from within, become a leader. In fact, I'm working on an ebook called Leadership Not Just For Bosses. And it's, it's really about separate these things in your head. There are certain behaviors that managers have to do and you pay them to do that, but there's other behaviors that leaders do that are much more organic and don't necessarily have to be attached to supervisory type, you know, job duties.
0: I also think that what you said about the the emotional dealing with the emotional difference in what a successful day looks like, you know, like I think as individual contributors, we get, um, you know, I think, like you said, like very used to measuring a success. You know, on a daily or weekly basis in a specific way, you know, I swung the hammer really well. I felt like this satisfying contact. I got this immediate feedback. And I think it's a little bit different emotionally when your job is holding bags of hammers for people, right?
2: Yeah. And what's interesting, what, what I've come to find is I really managed my career on a day to day basis, which is to say I didn't manage it. Um, like most of us, you know, job opportunity came along. Maybe I was upset at this job. I called a recruiter. I started looking. Whatever else, so it was very opportunistic, very transactional, very day to day, and that's where most of us live in our heads. Like that's, you know, if today was a good day or a bad day, it's very much about that that transaction. Once you start thinking about what does a good week look like, and what does a good month look like, and what does a good quarter look like, you start to take a different attitude with your your personal decisions too. You know, what do I need to do over the next quarter to move my career in the direction I want to? Because now I'm starting to plan. I'm I'm kind of sliding from being a passenger over to being a driver. And I have to look down the road now, right? I can't just turn the channel and look at my iPhone or my iPad. I've got to be paying attention to what's happening. I need to look further down the road. I need to anticipate things. I need to define some longer term goals beyond just the scope of this day or this week. And once you start doing that, you, A, become a better leader a manager, but B, you really learn to take control over your own career and decide where it's going to go for you and and own it instead of just kind of having it be something that's inflicted on you.
1: I find it challenging when you're really busy or feel like you don't have a lot of extra time to step outside yourself and really think about it. Think about what should my goals be? What are my skills that I need to develop to get better at what I'm doing now? What is it that I want to do? Yeah. It's it's tough.
2: Yeah. A lot of us spend a lot of time in the traffic jam, you know, it's everything around us, but like legitimately, sometimes it's worth pulling off the road for a hot minute and just recalibrating the GPS and deciding where it is you're actually going and just rising above that traffic for a minute, you know, take it, take a week off and devote it to that. Uh, And, and like you, you are worth it. Your career is worth it. What your career will give you is worth doing that.
1: Did you have someone who guided you on how to set those goals when you were younger? Or does this sort of something you just kind of aggregated over the years?
2: Hard experience. Um, You know, you you make mistakes. I've always been pretty reasonably willing to kind of face my mistakes and and try and break them down. Um, Some of that came from my training as an aircraft engineering mechanic. You know, one of our jobs was like we, we, we overhauled airplanes. That's what we actually did. We took them apart, reworked, and put them back together. But in theory, if, if the U.S. had been in a war footing and a battle-damaged aircraft had come back or, or we were consulted on one, we'd very quickly determine, okay, what has gone wrong? What is the minimum I need to do to get this thing flying again, even if it's going to be its last flight? And so that, that kind of, you know, that analysis, I was taught really, really early. So I, I tend to overanalyze a lot uh, and, and, you know, ratchet that down to the right amount of analysis. But, like, there's there's so many stories I could probably tell you about, you know, career screw-ups I made and how I realized I was making them and had to course correct. And sometimes, you know, your family, if they're super involved, can see it. Sometimes you've got colleagues who'll help you see it, maybe a friend. Um, I had mixes of all that. You know, I had different people who maybe weren't giving me advice or telling me anything, but the way they were reacting and the way they were kind of experiencing what I was trying to do you can kind of pick up some body language type cues and think okay maybe that's not going right like when i when i went independent I was so terrified i'd never been independent i was unemployed i mean self-employed is unemployed and i was terrified of where my next check was coming from like like legit crippling level anxiety attacks about the amount of money we would need to pay the bills and survive and everything else and so i would take any job that showed up um you can probably see it in the background here If, if I I wrote e-commerce for dummies and I'm not proud of it, but they offered me 12 grand. I'm like, okay, I'll write it in a month for 12 grand. But the problem I found is that, you know, people don't know who you are. They don't know what you're about. They don't know what they're engaging with. Uh, If, if you know, if you look at Pluralsight, we've got authors who are all over the place. They, they do courses on whatever interests them. That's great. But like if, if I'm here for this topic and I watch your course, and I'm like, wow, that's a great, great teacher right there. I want more of that. Oh, oh, they didn't do anything on, on my topic. So, you know, I'm out. So I never really make that connection. So I I made a decision back in 2002 to focus on a specific area. And I kind of did a market analysis to find a topical area that was underserved, that felt like it had demand. Uh, and that was VBScript for Windows administrators. It was the only automation tool we had at the time that rolled into windows PowerShell, And you know, I was, I was a Microsoft MVP for 16 years as the result of that, like so much good came from that decision because people knew who I was and they knew what problem I solved. Um, and I, you know, in retrospect, I kind of repackaged that for people. I'm like, your employer hires you to perform a service. They are paying you a fee to do a service. You're a vendor. You are a product that they have purchased to solve a problem. What problem is that? Know what problem you solve and people will want to buy it. But if you can't describe the problem you solve, and it's really difficult for other people to understand it as well.
0: That sounds like a combination of personal branding, but also like kind of brand strategy. Right? Yep. So, Absolutely. Um, and then actual investment in oneself to, yep. to to go deep, to be able to fulfill the the branding
1: aspiration that you have. Yeah. It sounds like you're a career solution engineer, Don. That's what I heard.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I by necessity, right? Especially when you're independent, it forces you to make decisions because like so much of your time gets burned on non-productive things, bookkeeping, accounts receivable, sales, you get to do all those things. So I had to make sure that that my productive time was productive, like it was producing money right? Like I had to live. And so you really do have to kind of dig in and start engineering some of that stuff.
0: There's a bunch of questions that I want to ask. And, go nuts. Uh, it's, it's, uh, maybe one of the things that we could do is go back to, I, I think you said there were a, a bunch of career mistakes that you made that you, um, got some realizations out of, uh, are there any of those that you feel comfortable maybe digging into a little bit?
2: Oh yeah. Tons. Um, I, I, think the, I think the branding thing is a big part of it. Like deciding who you are and what problem you solve. That was a, 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 a meta level, you know, th- realization that I had to come to. I spent a lot of time doing things that I'm not good at. Um, I, for example, you know, marketing webinars. I don't love doing them. I don't think I'm especially great at them. And I, I spend a lot of time prepping for them. Like to do an hour webinar for me takes, you know, it's just just a panel discussion. Like, you know, kind of like what we're doing here. I have to prep a lot. Whereas writing, like if you told me to write you a 5,000 word white paper, I could probably have it done before, you know, the end of the workday. So I really had to start inventorying, like, what are my skills? And I need to play to that. Like, I need to, I need to do the things I'm good at doing. And if there's some skills I need to learn to make those better, that's fine, but let's like really start with the strong thing and and get good at that and do that and maybe later branch out but you, you can't do all the things all at once and and really be really be a problem solver right Re- like really be a solution at it um so that was a big thing um, I think my lack of college. Like the fact that I didn't get all the standard courses that you get when you just go to college meant it took me a little longer to realize I was missing certain skills. Now, I don't think you have to go to college. I'm very anti-college, uh, which isn't always fair, but I just am. I don't think you have to go to college to get those skills, but I think you need to realize that you don't have them. And it pays to look around at the people who are in positions you want. Like, do they have a lot of business acumen? Doesn't mean you need to be an MBA but like you need to build your business acumen. If you're going to work in the world of business, you need to know the rules and how it plays. Otherwise you're always going to feel like, like the decisions are against you or you don't understand, or it's unfair or something else. So it it took me a little while to realize that there was those, those things that I, I didn't know. Cause I was so good at tech. I'm like, well, I didn't go to college for tech. I don't have to go to college for anything else, but you have to realize that you still have to get those skills somehow. Um, so, you know, things like, um, uh, speaking when I started doing training, that was really important. Um, and I had some great train the trainer classes that I, that I went to that just totally opened my eyes on that type of stuff. Um, business acumen has been a huge deal and probably always will be. It's something that, you know, you never really quit learning that cause it's such a dynamic world. Um, things like that. I, I think, you know, I, so I, I wrote this book called own your own, your tech career. It's with Manning books that just came out. So much of that is like, please don't screw up the same things I screwed up. Like, let me give you some business acumen. This is what a profit and loss statement is look like. Like, here's your starting point. Hopefully it makes you curious and you can kind of go on and, and supplement as you need to. Um, but that's really what that is. It's almost an, an inventory of the stuff I wish I had known 20, 30 years ago.
1: So it's it's one thing to decide to write a book. It's another thing to decide the content in it. And then it's another <laughs> thing to... Plan out how soon you're going to finish it. How did you get, or how did you find out that you were able to write so quickly and that you enjoyed it? I'm really curious about that one.
2: When I was at Bell Atlantic, we were going through a whole bunch of technology migrations, and you know, we were a we were an IBM focus shop, not Microsoft. So you know, it was Lotus Notes, not Exchange. And and I made the decision that we were going to implement Exchange. And so I would get emails. Well, I wasn't devoted for that. And I had one of those IBM like super mechanical keyboards and it, I'd get to work at eight o'clock and send what what my team would call like a pre-punishment email. And they would just hear me clackity clack 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 And I would just type four pages in response. I wouldn't have voted for that, four pages. Like, well, no one's ever gonna email you back. I'm like, I know, it's fantastic. And I just got really good at kind of organizing my thoughts and slamming them onto the page. Um, And once I went independent and started doing that, I started to measure it. Like I started to really, again, analyze when am I most productive? You know, is it an hour after I wake up? Like when is it? How long can I be that productive? How much can I get written in that amount of time? Number of words. Uh, What do I need to do ahead of time to make sure that that happens? Like is there prep? So I outline very aggressively. I outline very, very detailed. It's easy to play with outlines. I might spend two weeks outlining a book. And before I go to bed, I will read the outline for the chapter I intend to write the next day. And then I will get up, I'll spend half an hour doing emails and stuff. And then I will just, I will write the chapter, um, on a, on a good day, like a great day for me is 10,000 words and people just don't write that much. Uh, most people. So, you know, that's, I I developed a process mainly by kind of watching what was working and what wasn't. It wasn't so much like a, okay, I'm going to teach myself that half an hour after I get up no, it just happened that way. And I paid attention to it. And then I would lay my day out to, to accommodate that. Um, cause I don't actually know how you would go about changing that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it just became enough of a thing and it's like anything else. It's like going to the gym, right? Like if you keep lifting the weights, it gets easier. So I, I just, I did it. I wrote six books a year for the first two years I was independent, like six IT books. And like that's a lot of weightlifting and you, you get better at it. You get more practiced at it. You know, you read the edits that come back um, and then the next round of edits are easier because I won't make as many of those same mistakes again. And you just, it's a snowball and you do progressively get better and better and better. It's like, it's the same with public speaking. It's the same with standing up in a meeting. It's the same with putting together a good slide deck. It's the same with writing code. You know, it's, it's the same with building a server. You get progressively better the more you do it. You know, the first time I, I ever put together an, a Windows N T four server probably took the better part of two days. The next time it took a day. The next time it took half a day. Because you're right, you're starting to sequence. I know I need to do these drivers in this order. Don't put that card in until after I get the main OS up because SP two will make it crash. Like it's all those things. You optimize. And then automate. Ideally, yes. If you can I haven't figured out how to automate the writing bits yet, but yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it's it's so funny that you say that because, you know, I asked you about uh, I, th- I think you talked, you, you talked about, you know, not going to college and all the skills that you didn't learn there. And then I don't think any of the skills that you've mentioned after that, um, no. business acumen, uh, public speaking, uh, yeah. maybe you can like, get, I mean, writing. you can get those, right? Like you, yeah. you
2: can take communications classes in college. That'll kind of get you started on the public TV. It, it, it's not absent. Um, but you I mean, that's not the only place to get it.
0: Sure. Also the repetition, the the actual practice. I yeah. mean, you can take, you know, a ten or fifteen week class on communication and it might include something about public speaking, but that's not the same thing as um spending two hundred hours like in front of yeah. groups speaking. Yeah. Right? And then getting feedback yeah. on what worked and what didn't work.
2: Yeah. If you can. One of my best stories. They had, uh, Microsoft invited a bunch of us American MVPs out to speak. So they were running little tech day events. Um, one was in Antwerp in, in Belgium and the other was, I want to say in Den Haag in Holland. And, um, we did Belgium first and they had rented out a movie theater, like a, a Cineplex, multiple, the whole building was this and every single movie theater was a session. And so, you know, you walk in and, there's this fifty foot screen, and they've got a camera pointed at you, and they've got your slides inset up here, and you stand there, and you get your laptop all set up, and you're like, it's completely black because it's a movie theater, and they've got lights pointed at you; you cannot see a thing, and you're sweating, and you're like, okay, well, all right, I've got I've got to go over like I'm, my American idioms. I'm you know I've kind of practiced not using those as much. I got to make this a little more you know international, and you you go through this hour ninety minute whatever. Uh, presentation and you're trying to lay down some jokes. Like you don't want to just stand here and do this. You want to be effective and, and entertaining and engaging. And like no one's laughing, no one's making any noises at all. And I had two of these back to back. And I'm just I, I, at the end of it. I'm drenched. I'm I'm so nervous that I'm bombing internationally. And there's gonna you know NATO is gonna have to get me out of here and everything else. And so I I go out and I I sit down with with a friend who'd come along and we're sitting at a bar. If you want a beer? I'm like, oh, you have no idea. And if they if they could, if they could just put whiskey in the beer and then remove the beer, that'd be great. And uh, the guy who organized the event, who's like a highly placed person at Microsoft, strolls by, he says, "Hey, how, how how are your sessions?" I'm like, "Uh, not good. Super sorry." Not he's like, "Well, what do you mean?" I'm like, "There's no laughing. There's no clapping. There's no like nothing." He says, "Oh no, that's just Belgians. That's just how they like. They just won't engage like that." I'm like, "You need to tell people that ahead of time." Like we rely on that feedback, that body language. I can't see any of it. He says it wouldn't matter. They just sit there and stare at you. I'm like, that's not okay, man. That's not cool.
1: Wow. That's great. I I remember doing a presentation recently for some folks in Asia Pacific and I remember someone telling me that there might not be as many questions from that group yeah. as there might be from the same yep. group of folks from the US or the Americas and it Uh, wasn't that you're doing a bad job necessarily. It's just that they may not feel as comfortable asking questions.
2: Actually, it's two reasons. A lot of times there will be a cultural embarrassment over maybe not speaking your language well. Um, But a lot of times it's to make you look good because if I have to ask you a question, then you weren't doing a good job as a teacher by bringing that up first. And so I will just not, I will not confront you. Like asking a question of a teacher is culturally seen as confrontational in, in certain Asian cultures, in particular. So yeah, it's it's all that kind of weirdness.
0: Cultural calibration for public speaking. I think that yeah, there's that's I, a book there's right books there. you
2: there's books yeah, not about the Belgians. <laughs> for, like fortunately, that night they bust us to to Den Haag, and the next day we were speaking to a bunch of of you know obviously more Holland based kind of audience. Uh, and they were awesome. They're like laughing. They're like, well, "You want to go get a beer?" I'm like, "Absolutely." That's what we're going go to go um, so do. Just totally different culture. I
0: guess I never thought about um, as much about the the feedback that you get, um, visual, um, the atmosphere. You know, that you, you know when you're doing public speaking and you're connecting with people, and there's a lot of positive you know feedback just you know almost like crackling power in the air that you're you're connecting with them very powerfully and if you remove that just not that you're not actually connecting with them but the there's a cultural like gap that doesn't allow them to show it in the exact yeah. same way right yeah. and yeah, you, don't, you know don't know how like to read. the way that they're showing it to you right yeah Oh, I stayed. That means that I was enjoying what you were saying.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's super hard, you know, having done it um, now, particularly in my position at Pluralsight, I, I I talk to a lot of customers from all around the world and it's even harder through video, obviously, but like just being aware that those things happen mean you, you kind of like part of your brain pulls back from the body language it's expecting and kind of tries to analyze the situation more uh, just because you're aware that that's a thing. And like, I don't, you know, I'll get on the phone with somebody and they'll have a non-American accent. I'm like, okay, I legit do not know. You could be in Australia. You could be in India. I have no idea where you might be or what culture you're from. I just know it's probably not exactly the same as mine. So I need to moderate my expectations a little bit because you might not behave the way I expect you to. And that's fine.
0: I think even just the exercise of examining what, you know, cultural idioms that we use on a daily basis and you know, whether we think they're as universal as they are. You know, I, I remember, um, I had a teacher in high school who used a lot of baseball analogies. And at the time I didn't know anything about baseball. So they were, they were just not landing with me. Yep.
2: And it's what, you know, it's a really good point. So I, one of my, my big sticks, and this comes across in the On Your Tech career book too, is that So many tech people suffer from such massive crippling imposter syndrome that we believe, truly believe to the root of our soul, we have nothing to offer. And so we tend to just keep quiet, meaning we absorb information, but we put very little of it back out in the world. And another argument you'll hear is like, you know, well, I'd love to blog, but everything's already been blogged about. There's nothing left. The internet is complete. So what would I do? And I tell him, well, you know, the thing is you've got a different background and culture take software. I can explain nearly anything in software programming using a car analogy. But what if you've got a group of people who come from an area where car ownership is just not super common? You know, what if they live in, in downtown Beijing and they're, they're more used to bicycling or walking or taking mass transit or something like that, that my analogies might not work. Teaching, teaching is not putting new information out into the world. Teaching is not originating information. Teaching is taking information that already exists and repackaging it for the specific audience that you're trying to hit. You know, the way you would package algebra for me in eighth grade is very different, I hope, than you would package it for someone in a master's program, right? So we all actually do have something that we can give back, and that's to take information that's out there and repackage it for an audience that we're personally familiar with. And there's a lot of value in that because you're helping someone else. Now, eventually, if we help them along far enough, they won't need us anymore they'll be able to go to the source information documentation reference whatever and and our job to them is done and and that's like the goal and they can start doing it for someone else and and narrow it down even more so like it it's not about you have to create something new to be helpful in the world and to put something in it just try explaining it in a way that makes sense to you because it's going to resonate with someone else as well
1: i love the algebra reference because you're former math teacher here so Fantastic. Oh yeah. For,
2: former math failed student. So
1: yeah, I heard it's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk after this. Yeah. But that's, that's so great. We want to teach people how to learn on their own and be confident that they can because the, the imposter syndrome is about the learning sometimes too. The, the,
2: the tech industry is, is a little bit unique in the world. You know, if, if you look at, at the average pay, You know, normalized for geography across the industry, it's one of the highest-paying jobs in the world. You know, a lot of tech people make, you know, high-end nurse medical money or or even lawyer money, but those professions involve a serious amount of education. They involve what amounts to apprenticeships, internships. Um, It's an it's an extensive lift to get through that. You can teach yourself to code on an iPad. You can publish apps from an iPad. It, the the barrier to entry is very low if you can learn it. And it's it's not like it's a zero sum game either. It's not like me helping 5 people become software engineers is in any way diminishing like there's we need more. We need all of them. We need everyone to learn how to code basically. Like that's what the world is turning into is is it's all about IT and technology. So like you're you're not even hurting yourself or your own prospects by helping someone come into the industry. And so it's, it's one of the only industries that's really like that. It's one of the few that you can do from anywhere in the world. All you need is an internet connection. Uh, And we've just figured out that we can do pretty much anything remotely if we give it a minute. Right? So this idea of, you know, turning around and, and, and using what you know to help someone else and just teach it to someone else is, is incredibly meaningful and beneficial. You know, it, I could teach you to change the, t- tr- you know, uh, the, the tire on your car, but that's not going to change your life. It uh, might make you more confident, might, might do a lot of positive things. I teach you to, to build a server or build a network or write code or build a data visualization. That could actually legitimately change your life and your family.
1: I think there's this fear that people have, Don, and tell me what you think, that if I teach someone I work with some skill that I have and now they have it too, maybe they're going to get promoted before I do.
2: Yeah, it could happen. It could happen. But I look at it this way. If I if I am unit 1 and that's all I can do, then someone else who is also unit 1 is not ever going to be able to do that much more than me. Like we're going to be roughly equal. But if I can be a force multiplier, if I can help 5 people work like 8, then like my net product there is three, I think. So, like teaching is teaching is force multiplying. If if you can help your company go from having five junior devs to five senior devs, then you have created a massive output. What a lot of us aren't good at because we lack business acumen is measuring that and communicating that. Um, I've got a formula I tell people, and this is something I used to do in my VBScript and PowerShell classes because a lot of companies and a lot of people have difficulty with the idea of I'm going to go spend a hundred hours writing a script to do the same thing I used to do myself. And I'm like, well, nobody wants to invest in that. I'm like, you used a good word, invest. You don't know the other side of that, which is the return. And here's how you do it. So this is a little bit U S centric, right? The math differs in different countries and it, it can get really weird, but in the U S you take whatever you make per year, multiply that by 1.4 that creates what's called a fully loaded salary. That's your actual cost to your employer. They pay payroll taxes that you don't see. They pay benefits, like all these other things they have to pay for, unemployment, all that kind of stuff. So 1.4 is is a common fully loaded number. If you want to get more specific, ask your HR department what number they use, the multiplier they use to calculate a fully loaded salary. They'll know exactly what you mean and you'll sound smart. So 1.4, divide that by 2,000. That's the approximate number of working hours in a year. So by the time you take out common holidays, the average amount of time off, sick time, blah, blah, you get about 2,000 hours per year left. That's your hourly rate. Okay, now it's math. If you spent 100 hours to write a script or to help some other people or whatever, you know how much money that cost. What you need to do now is figure out how much it costs to do things before you help them do it, and the difference is the return on the investment. So if you know, yeah, we used to have this task and it only takes 15 minutes, but three people have to do it and we each of us do it like 20 times a day, cool. You know how much they're worth per hour, do the math. That's how much it costs to do that. You spend your 100 hours or whatever to bring that down to zero, that's your return. And if if you can start to think about yourself as a vendor providing a service to a company, then you can start to think what numeric value am I bringing to the company and what will each action result in in a return? And like if you've got a resume that says, yeah, I invested this much money to help these people and now they're operating at this level and this is the money that's involved... Well who cares if that other guy gets promoted? You can probably go get a better job someplace else with someone who'll appreciate that kind of savings
1: That's a good point yeah and i I have read in certain books that the mindset of being an advocate for yourself or someone else oftentimes makes it easier for you to go and ask for things like a promotion and you know being an advocate for your family or for
2: if if you Particularly if you want to move into a lead technical role where you're going to be partly supervising or assisting other people, or especially if you want to move into management, like part of your job is to build a team, not just tell everybody what to do. You are responsible in part for their retention. Meaning if you're losing people, it's your fault. You've got to make sure that you're showing them a professional growth path that you're exposing them to activities that will help with their growth. Like once you become a manager, you may continue to climb the ladder, but it gets harder because you can't use both hands. You can't have both hands on a rung. You've got to have one hand on a rung holding yourself up and another one reaching back to pull your team up behind you or you're going to fail because your team is your only means of success. And so once you start flipping your thinking around and you show a company that look, I'm actually about enabling everybody. Like, I want to make them better at their jobs. I want to help them be better. Well, that's leadership. That's management. Like, if I see you doing that, I'm far more likely to put you in the position than if you're just like, hey, I want to move into management. Uh, why? Are you sure? Really? It sucks. Are you sure you want to do that? Like, do it first. You know, be that advocate, be that group builder, be that leader. And you're far more likely to to get a job being paid to do that.
1: I think a lot of people are concerned about losing their tech chops when they move into management yeah. in the tech industry. Did you have that trouble?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, geez, I I got a VP job. I think two two years ago. I don't know. I don't know if we count the pandemic or not. Two or three years ago, and it kind of meant the end of my tech life. It it meant the end of of being, you know mr powershell It meant the end of the books it meant the end of the speaking i just didn't have time i didn't have time it wasn't part of my outcomes anymore um it's really hard because you're, you're career switching right and i think people don't think of it that way if you made the decision to you know okay i'm an accountant let's take tech out of it it's a it's a good example um i'm an accountant but i, I want to become a lawyer Right. So I'm gonna have to go to school, I'm gonna have to do all that work, blah, blah, blah. Nobody in that situation ever thinks, God, but I'm, I'm gonna miss my accounting skills. Right? They're taking on a new profession. Management is a different profession. If you are going to take that on, you are going to walk away from your old profession. You need to focus on your new profession. Your continuing education needs to be focused on managerial skills, like everything you do, the conferences you go to, the books you read, the time you spend, the articles you read, everything should be focused on the new profession. And so yeah, you're stepping away from your old profession. You are going to lose your tech chops because you're going to gain management chops. You're going to have a new set of job skills to be proud of, and if you got into tech just because you love fussing with it, well, get a hobby, right? Like I love writing as a, as a, you know, what I was, I got to do a lot of writing. I move into management. I don't anymore. So I got a hobby. I write fiction that lets me exercise the thing I enjoy while recognizing that my new profession is just as valuable and it needs, you know, it needs a lot of attention and work just like they all do. It doesn't mean I have to walk away from something I, I personally love. It just means, you know, I conduct it outside of work now.
0: It's such an interesting way to think about it i think that most people um don't aren't making that connection between taking a
2: new role and really think about it as just another promotion yeah yeah it's not though it's it's not a promotion it's a whole new role there's a company called radford um and one of the things they specialize in is uh i.t salary data so they they help companies figure out how much you should be paying for a given job role in a given area and and like most companies like that they they structure things out so you know there's there's pay bands a very entry level you know intern programmer might be a p2 so professional level 2 and then you work up through p3 4 5 and what's interesting is like a p3 so that's a you know practitioner like totally fine at doing their job is the same as an m2 Uh, Sorry. Yeah. So a lower level manager will get paid the same as a slightly higher level individual contributor because it's a different profession. And that is the premium that the market places on management skills. That's just free market economy. It's how it works. So it's a different job family. You know, you're no longer a programmer. You are a manager. It's a different job, which is why a lot of people shouldn't do it if if they don't want to do that job. Uh, I think the worst thing you can do, and this is the mistake I made a couple of times is is take on a management job without realizing that you are switching careers. You are going to be a lawyer now, not an accountant um and I think that's where a lot of people get hung up, they get depressed about it, at least I did um it's a big decision, and it's a decision that you should do knowing what the right outcome like this these are the outcomes that this new job can create, and I want to do it because I want to do that job, not just because I want some more money or I want a better title. Like the the rat race aspects of it are one of the things that infuriates me the most, particularly about American culture, is this, we get out of school and obviously your first job is not going to pay that much, right? Because you're you're fresh. And so like you're kind of getting some experience and you're looking for that opportunity, that pay raise, that title bump, that next pay. And, And when does it stop though? Like no one ever tells us when you can you can just quit and just do your job.
0: Honestly, Nick, uh, I actually don't want to cut it off right there, um, but we're going to have to stop just so we can get the full two episodes uh, rather than putting out an hour and a half uh, single episode. But, you know, super exciting to listen to to Don talk. Uh, The things that jumped out to me, you know, right away were the reference to imposter syndrome that he made and then his writing, like how prolific of a writer he was. And, you know, there just has to be something there with like the link between writing and learning and gaining skills and gaining knowledge. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. I've heard many people say that in order to learn something better, they wanted to teach it. And really teaching is something you can do pretty well through writing. A lot of people consume things like blogs and how to's, you know, better than videos, for example. I actually prefer the written word to a video. It's something I can search with control F and find what I'm looking for very quickly and read it multiple times. It's a little bit harder with a video, but try to make that as easy as possible. I really loved the story about writing a four page email response to someone and them never responding. And him saying, oh, yeah, I knew they weren't going to respond. <laughs> I just thought that was great. Makes me chuckle, even, even listening back to it. I really liked what he said about people having something to offer. And, you know, teaching through writing, teaching is just repackaging, explaining something in a different way from the way you understand it. It might really click with somebody. All the more reason to, to write that blog on something that maybe a bunch of other people have written about with your unique spin, you never know who it might help.
0: Definitely just want to underline that idea of like, you know, teaching as learning, right? If you want to be, um, really good at something, practice teaching it to somebody
1: else. And then that'll really make you learn. How about that massive fear people have of losing their tech chops when they go into management? I feel like we've asked numerous people about this fear and they've all said, oh yeah, I was definitely afraid of that happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, Don's like point of view, which is, you know, you are, you're walking away from a role that we're using those kinds of skills, but you're walking into a role where there's a whole new set of skills that you need to get spun up on. I mean, I think we've talked about, that exact same thing or, you know, an analogy leaving operations and going into, uh, sales engineering, right? It's, you're walking away from a set of operational skills and walking towards a set of sales engineering skills. And, you know, it's not exactly the same thing,
1: but it is analogous. Yeah. All your time, training and effort needs to be put toward learning the new role, the new job. Yeah.
0: Anything else before we get out of here?
1: I just want to say a thank you to Josh Duffney, former guest on the show. He had mentioned Don Jones in one of his episodes. He suggested we reach out to Don and have him on the show, and, well, it was awesome. So thank you, Josh. Yeah, shout out to Josh. And just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder and interesting guests to have on the show if you have a recommendation. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey.
0: All right, farewell listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. This time, with part two of Don Jones. Uh, I'm John White, at journeyman for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd Underscore, signing off. Adios.